My friends, uh, my name is James, uh, if we uh, have not met, and uh, let us okay, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you know us more so than we know ourselves. And may this truth, uh, as we hear from your word, uh, expose us, change us, redeem us, and make us more like you. For your glory, for prayer. Amen. Um, if you could grab your Bibles, you'll need a hard card for the mini exercise. Grab your Bibles. If you want to turn to page one, turn to page one. Put a finger in page one. Then, when you've done that, turn to page 881. Good. It's like, take example, the story of King David in life. 
Uh, and we read that as, um, you know, King David destroyed and, and killed uh, Goliath, the giant. And we read that and think, oh, I'm King David, you know, I'm conquering the giants in my life. You know, whether it's my boss and my neighbor and my mother-in-law, you know, I'm defeating, I'm victorious. But the reality is we're probably more so like the Israelites, off in the corner, afraid to fight Goliath in need of a savior. We are, as Paul says, just as sinful, just as much in need as the people in the Old Testament. And there's one thing he focuses on, one thing that is common to all of us. That's found in verse 7. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. What we're going to look at tonight is three things. We're going to look at false worship. And we're going to look at fake worship and true worship. Because there's a common line, common theme amongst all humanity, Paul says, is that we have, uh, as it were, ignored God and replaced Him for something or something else, uh, something or someone else. Where instead of worshipping Creator as God intended it, we would find our joy, our satisfaction, our identity in Him, we've given up on God and replaced Him with something else. This is what Paul means by idolatry. It's interesting, there was an author, a guy called David Wallace in America, who's not a believer, right? But he says this about idolatry. He was saying this to a class of college graduates. College graduates. He says this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what worship. So he called the Apostle and David Wallace saying that we are all worshippers. The question is not, am I a worshipper, but what do I worship? And that there's something in your life that you have as your ultimate treasure. The source of whether you feel joy or satisfaction. That there is something in which you dedicate your life to, you make sacrifices for. That we're all worshippers. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, provides three examples from the Old Testament, three examples from Israel's past. And the first one he mentions is, serves as a great illustration for what idolatry is. He says in verse 7, Don't become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in a single day, 23,000 people fell dead. You notice that the New Bible is a, it's in bold. And that, that's a quote from the Exodus account, which Brian read out to us. The golden calf moment. Where the Israelites had been freed from slavery after many, many years. And God had brought them through uh, the, the parting of the Red Sea. And they were about to hear get the Ten Commandments of God looked from outside. But Moses was taking a long time. So they turned to his brother Aaron and said, Make us a God. It says, all right, get your ear to the necklaces, that kind of thing is burn it all down, melt it all down, build the calf. And they worship it. They make festivals, they make sacrifices. If they got up to play, is a euphemism for they had sex in honor of this calf. They dedicated their very being to this thing. They even had the audacity to say, thank goodness this calf brought us out of Egypt. 
And it's quite comical, it's quite an ironic moment. Uh, two things stand out for me. The first is that it's pathetic, right? It's a cow. It's not even like a bull, right? What, what you know, team has a mascot as a calf? You don't hear like Chatsworth calves, right? You know, like, it's pathetic. It's, a, it's made a cow. And the other thing that stands out is the fact that they're saying it, will sa- it saved us when they just built it themselves. They dedicated their very being, but they know they just built it from where it came from. But don't we do the same thing with, say, money? I mean, it so influences whether we have meaning or importance, doesn't it? We, we fight over it, destroys relationships. If you find a $50 note in the sidewalk, you get this thrill, don't you? And yet, it's just paper. Paul then goes on to give two other examples in verse 9. He says, Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes, nor should we complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. One is of testing, the other of comfort. And if you read the Exodus accounts, God provides for these guys in amazing ways, and yet they complain. They say, Well, God, does God really know what he's doing? I mean, you know, this whole freedom thing, oh, it sucks. I mean, this is the kind of group you don't give feedback forms to, right? Because they are worse than a teenager with bad internet connection. You know, they love to complain the whole way. And they were delusional, right? They would even say, How good we had in Egypt. Oh, those were the days when we had full stomachs and meat. But the reality was they were slaves. Who were abused maliciously. Because your heart exposes, the heart of grumbling, the heart of complaint exposes that will never be satisfied, never be content, never be filled. These were their idols. But if it's true that we're all worshippers, I wonder what your idols are. What are the things you run to? So we're just going to ask you six questions to think. For yourself, what, what thing, what are the idols that are you drawn to? First question I want to ask you is this, what would really make you happy? What is it that you worry most about? Third one is, what do you use to comfort yourself when things get bad? What do you daydream about? And early on, what do you want to make sure that people know about you? And lastly, what prayer, if unanswered, would make you seriously think about turning away from God. As you start to think about those questions, they expose in us the idols in our life that we are indeed all worshippers. You, you, you might notice the end result that is common amongst the idols mentioned in 1 Corinthians. What, what's the common end result? It's death, isn't it? That idolatry will always lead to death. 
You replace the creator for something that's created and will always end in death. In different ways. It might be profound unfulfillment, emotional death. The author, David Wallace, who I mentioned earlier, says this. A reason for choosing God is pretty much anything else you worship will eat in your life. If you worship money and things, if they're the thing you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexually allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Or worship power, and you'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It's hard for them. Friends, worshiping anything else other than God places a burden on something that was not meant to give. And it leaves us feeling alone, empty, hungry. Another way adultery leads to death might be physical death. That you so devote yourself to your career or, or maybe the other sex that you sacrifice at the expense of your own health again and again and again. But ultimately, all idolatry ends in spiritual death. When you replace God, then God's right judgment is upon you. The sin of idolatry. And for those of you who aren't believers here tonight, what is it that you worship? Can I ask you this? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Because I want to suggest an alternative. Instead of something, someone, who rather than takes and gives, namely Jesus Christ, who rather than leave you feeling unsatisfied, emotionally uh, empty, he emptied himself on a cross and said, I thirst so that you can be filled. Rather than giving, sacrificing your life for him, he sacrifices his life for you. Rather than receiving of God's right judgment of the sin of adultery, he takes it upon himself at the cross. Your God will crush you. Your idol will crush you. And death in all its forms is your future. But you are called to smash your eyes. Another word for that involves good repentance. Acknowledge what you've been doing and accept the forgiveness by the God who has crushed for you. You're probably asking that. How, how do you remove the idols in your life, right? How, how do you get rid of them? And this is the second point, fake worship. How not to do it. Because if you have a look at verse 14, right? Paul says, therefore, my dear friends, Flee from idolatry. But you might be asking, well, if, it's, if my idol is money, right, or health, or my job, or my family, then how do you run from that? What, do you just run into the hills of the cave and hide out? How, how do you escape from that? And it's interesting, verse 19 to 20 kind of show that the problem is not the thing itself, but if behind it is a heart that does not worship God. We often think the solution is, you know, a band-aid one. Something that's a quick fix. 
But you'll say, I don't know if you've noticed in verse 1, we see the problem is far more different, far, far more difficult, far more deeper. Have a look in verse, verses 1 onwards. Now I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under a cloud and passed through the sea, or were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all drank the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. But before I go on, what he's saying there is this. Just like the Corinthians were baptized, so the Jews were baptized as a word the Red Sea. Just like you Corinthians had the Lord's Supper, so too they had a meal of remembrance. But verse 5, God was not pleased with most of them. And they were struck down in the wilderness. See, the Israelites thought they were okay because they're engaged in spiritual activities, you know, superficially on the outside, but God was not pleased with them. The Corinthians thought, we're okay because we're engaged in Christian activities, but superficially on the outside, but God was not pleased with them. Because ultimately their heart was for another. It's like, imagine if there was a husband, right, who took his wife out for a date, took to the, the the restaurant she loves, brought her some uh, flowers that she loves. As they're sitting down at dinner, watching the sunset, he reads a poem they wrote for her, and she melts and loves it. And then they go home and watch her all the chocolate chip stalls. You know, it's the perfect melt. But then you find out he has a girlfriend. And you should be outraged at it, right? Because his heart is for another. And that is what Paul is addressing. Is that superficially you could be doing the right things. But if your heart is for another. If as a Christian you, you might be praying, you might be getting baptized, you might be having Lord's Supper, you might be doing Christian activities. But if your heart is not for Jesus, then you're a fraud, a thank because you cannot have two loves. You cannot serve both God and an idol. You cannot have two masters. If I'm going to be honest with you, this is hard, isn't it? Like, if, if the balance between fake and false worship and true is hard, right? Because how do you be authentic? How do you have a genuine, how do you know, right, if Jesus is this and how do you know if you truly worship Him? Because if you sort of realize that, well, I need to smash my idols and my tendency is to be fake, not real, but how do I be authentic in my worship of Jesus? And this is the, the third final point, true worship. And there's two markers in this passage that show what true worship is. The first is the battle. Look in verse at 12. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has overcome overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful. Paul is saying as Christians we will want to go back again and again to our idols. We will look over our shoulders and think, maybe it was better when I. But hope is found. What does it say there? There's three beautiful words. God is faithful. Not you. God is faithful. If you remember in the Gospels, when Jesus is in the desert for 40 days, he's hungry, he's alone, and Satan comes. And Satan comes and tempts him. 
gives you three temptations. One of them is, he says, look at the city, look at the kingdoms. Jesus, they're yours, that you will bow, bow down to them. What does Jesus say? He says, get lost, basically. You know what it says. Jesus said, worship God and serve Him alone. Jesus resisted temptation. When offered the world, He said no. He said no because He knew that you and I would have jumped at Satan's request. That we do it every day. That we don't worship God and serve Him only. But Jesus did. He said it and He did it. And then on that cross, he exchanged, he exchanged his faithfulness for your sin of idolatry. And true worship, friends, begins with the fact that God is faithful, and you are not, and I am not. And it can only begin by what Jesus has done. A recognition of that, I have sinned against you, God, but you have forgiven me. And though we will look back again and again and again at our eyes, and sometimes we will run back into their eyes, just like the, the Israelites wanted to run back to Egypt. That we know that God is faithful. He's faithful in different ways. He's faithful in forgiveness, right? That when we run to our idols, that we know that God is a forgiving God. Because He didn't love us when we were faithful to Him. We can run back knowing that we'll be forgiven. The question is, will you return? And he's faithful in being present in temptation. Have a look at verse 13. Uh, it says this, No temptation has overcome you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way to escape so that you are able to bear it. What he's saying there is God is not absent, but he's present. And he's with you in that temptation, reminding you that that is no longer you. And the second marker in this passage of what true worship is, is that of transformation. Paul's got, Paul describes the fact that true worship is a complete transformation, a complete reorientation of your life. It's a remarkable verses in this passage. So verse 26, it says, For the earth of the Lord and all that is in it. What he's saying there is that if this planet is God's, then everything becomes an opportunity to give praise to Him. That every decision you make, no matter how small or big, is an opportunity to praise God or not. And that's why verse 31 is so remarkable. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. There's now no longer a there's no longer a sacred or secular secular divide. There's no such thing as this really worships God and that doesn't. But everything is an opportunity. Your whole life is an opportunity to glorify God. When something like sex now no longer becomes something that is your identity and yet is not demonized, but an opportunity to glorify God. Where something like food is no longer my only comforter, no longer, nor is my enemy, but an opportunity to glorify God. Where your career, your job, no longer gives you the definite, defining features of your life. You're no longer defined by it, but it becomes an opportunity to honor God. Your money no longer determines the meaning of your life, 
But the purpose of your life, the Lord, should be to be generous, to work hard, to give to others. And it's interesting, the marker of what, whether you glorify giving God, the marker of whether you're giving God glory or not, is actually found in can you do things for other people? Interestingly enough, the end of this chapter says, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. The focus is in giving glory to God is others, other people. Because idolatry is all about me. Me, 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 but once you grasp what Jesus has done, he died for you, if you died for others, it completely changes everything. It completely reshapes, remotivates every decision you do. That I want to do things for other people, ultimately for the glory of God. Let me end by just showing you a story to hopefully capture what I mean. Imagine you had been asked to come and see a masterpiece of an artwork. Let's say the Mona Lisa. And you've been asked to come and gaze upon it. So you walk into the art gallery. As you approach and get closer to the Mona Lisa, you notice something. You look up and you, you see the lights, the accent lights, staring at the painting. You think, wow, what amazing lights. I mean, they're so small but crisp. So frightening. You spend a couple of moments looking at the lights. And then you look down and think, what an amazing what a barrier that is. I mean, it's so strong in here, such good texture, good colour. And then you look further down and see the floorboard, you think, wow, what a beautiful floorboard. So, so much detail, so smooth, you know. And then you walk away, completely missing the moment of that is exactly what we do with God. We have been invited to the life of the spectacular, but we focus on the Monday and think it will offer more than it can. But when Christ exposes you and reorientates you, you see things differently. You, you see the lights and the rope and the floor, but you see what they're telling the folks that are meant to give to give light, to shine a focus upon the masterpiece, God himself. And it changes you to see the masterpiece, Jesus Christ, in all of his glory, in all of his beauty, in all of his wonder. And you live life every moment of every day. Give us that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so sorry for the times again and again in which we worship created stuff rather than you creator. We thank you that though we focus on the Monday, that you did not leave us there, that you came to earth, you lived like us, tempted amongst idols, but you said no, and we are so thankful for that, that at that cross you gave us your faithfulness in exchange for us in that altar. Thank you for that. And we pray that we would, in the battle of life, say no to temptation and change every moment, make every moment of change which we give praise to you. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it for the glory of God. Amen.